It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, should the West engage with the Taliban? Chaotic scenes at Kabul airport last month were a tragic epilogue to a 20-year war led by the US with a wide coalition of allies in Afghanistan. Few had predicted the speed of the Taliban's advance or that the country's urban centres would fall with such little resistance. Launched in the wake of 9-11, the war finished just ahead of its 20th anniversary. As the Taliban seized control of the country, the nascent Afghan state, supported over two decades with trillions of dollars, simply seemed to evaporate. Now, more than three weeks on, the West's withdrawal from Afghanistan is complete and the Taliban has named a new government. Afghans, once again, are confronted with a dangerous future. America and its allies stand humiliated and ponder how to deal with the new reality on the ground. My guest this week has been alongside America in a crucial role in the war. General Sinek Carter is Britain's chief of the defence staff and head of the country's armed forces. He's previously been head of the army, served in Germany in the Cold War, Northern Ireland during the Troubles, and he's commanded troops in Bosnia and Kosovo. In charge of 55,000 NATO soldiers during the Afghan surge, he was also deputy commander of the NATO mission. He's due to retire from his role in the next months, so the question of what lies ahead for Britain's armed forces, the Western Alliance and Afghanistan is on everyone's minds. General Sinek Carter, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks, Anne. It's good to be with you. Now, since the fall of Kabul last month, the question that's loomed large is how the Taliban are going to govern. On Tuesday, they unveiled their new government, and it is perhaps predictably stuffed with very conservative Talib's former Guantanamo detainees and even a designated global terrorist. You spent time fighting these figures. What is it like to see them sitting there as senior ministers? I mean, I think um, <clears throat> my starting point would be having spent nearly three years of my life on the ground, and as you say, fighting the Taliban. This is not the outcome that we, were, of course, were fighting for. Uh, so it is very challenging for us. And indeed, my heart goes out to all those who have fought the Taliban, and indeed many who fought under my command in Afghanistan, because they'll be feeling a bit like I'm feeling now, which is, you know, asking some big questions about how this has turned out. However, um, we, of course, have to deal with the facts as we now find them. And I think that we are, of course, disappointed to see what doesn't look like a particularly inclusive government at the moment, it has to be said, and certainly no women involved in it. But where I think we have to hope is that 60% of Afghans have been born since 2001. And of course, that means that the large majority of the population have had the chance to see how Afghanistan could become a modern state. And I think we have to hope that the Taliban realise that if they're going to govern this country, they're not going to be able to govern it without the consent of the population, as successive Afghan governments have found. 
So I think our hope has to be that um, the 60% of people who've been born since 2001 will insist on being governed in a more modern way. And I don't think we can be too optimistic about what that looks like, but it could be a lot better than we saw in the past, perhaps. It's interesting that you use that phrase, too optimistic, because the whole saga, in a way, looks like a triumph of optimism over reality on the ground. And some have suggested, and I think you're one of them, that the Taliban could be different today than the way people remember them in the 1990s, less repressive, more inclusive, perhaps, or at least keener to reach out to the international community. It's not long ago since you called them a group of country boys who live by a code of honour. Those comments do sound a bit way off in the light of what's happened in the last few days, the, the ban on women playing sports, brutal crackdowns on protest, don't they? Yes, Anne. Again, I wonder whether you listen to everything I said. I was quoting President Karzai. I wasn't necessarily agreeing with him. Um, I said President Karzai uh, has described the Taliban as country boys who live by a particular code of honour, that is Pashtun Wali. Uh, I have, have to say I wasn't necessarily agreeing with him. I was just simply explaining that. Uh, and of course, um, what I was also conscious of uh, at the time that I made those remarks was that I had a thousand troops on the ground um, and that we found ourselves in the uh, position which we hadn't necessarily reckoned with, that we would be having to um, cooperate with the Taliban uh, in dealing with the evacuation that concluded on the 30th of August. So um, it, it wasn't necessarily right at that particular stage to be calling them out as the enemy. And of course, what I also went on to say in that interview, which I will repeat, is that it's very important that we encourage the government that is now in Kabul to govern in as inclusive a way as possible. And that's what we have to encourage them to do. And I think we do still have some leverage. I mean, you know, there is a significant humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Their economy, unless they get their mind around it very quickly, is going to collapse uh, because much of the money that is needed to sustain it is in US banks at the moment. Uh, and if that money is not released, then it's going to be very challenging for the Taliban to govern. And Afghanistan depends now much more on its economy than it did when they last governed. So they're going to have to find a way through that. And that does give us, I think, a little bit of leverage in terms of trying to encourage them to do things in that more inclusive way that I've just referred to. This argument about leverage is a crucial one, isn't it? It, it seems to point in, in two directions at the moment. Uh, over the weekend, Mark Milley, the top US general, you'll know very well, I, I'm sure, from your joint endeavours in Afghanistan, he said civil war was likely to erupt in Afghanistan. The more hopeful view of the Taliban in power is that that can be avoided because they will need a support. And there is, as you suggested, some role that the West can play, I suppose. Is he the pessimist and you the optimist in this scenario? No, I don't think so, because um, I have always said right up until the Afghan government fell that there were three scenarios that could play out. The first scenario was that the Afghan government could soldier on, as we all hoped it would do, but I think we all prepared for the worst. The second scenario uh, was that in soldiering on, that might lead to a military stalemate, which could lead to a political compromise with the Taliban. And the third scenario, of course, was state fracture, as one saw in the 1990s, when the country divided along ethnic and perhaps to a degree tribal lines. And I think the answer is that we don't yet know how any of this is going to play out. I mean, the Taliban now have a government, but of course, it's going to be a very challenging country to govern. And it's going to be challenging because the vast number of Afghans we know don't necessarily support the Taliban. So how they govern is going to be really critical to keeping the state together. Now, we've seen a rebellion in the Panjshir Valley, which I don't think has yet run out of gas. Now, that you know, may be the portent in the longer term of something more. 
So, so much of this is going to depend upon whether they can govern inclusively. And if they can govern inclusively, then maybe state fracture will be avoided. The speed of the takeover last month took many by surprise, of course, including the armed forces. And the Foreign Secretary in Britain, Dominic Raab, has suggested it was a failure of intelligence. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, said he knew the game was up by July and they've had quite a public spat. Uh, The army might need to intervene over how their departments have handled this crisis. Who's right? Well, I'm obviously not going to enter into um, a political spat or indeed comment on it, really. What I would simply say is that I think this is a lot less about a failure of intelligence and In many ways, it's much more about a failure of judgment and assessment, because, of course, the way the process works is that we have a joint intelligence committee, which looks at all of the inputs, whether that's from the secret intelligence agencies, whether it's from open source, whether it's from military intelligence and what have you, and indeed reporting from ambassadors and political intelligence as well. And based upon that, they produce some assessments and then decision makers then make judgments on those assessments. But I think in a way, the most telling thing about all of this is the Taliban didn't expect to win as quickly as they won. And not for that matter did the Afghan government. Everybody on either side and the international community was taken by surprise here. And of course, the reason they were taken by surprise was that this is so much more about morale and the moral component uh, than it is about the physical fight on the ground. And I think when states collapse, you know, it's much more in the mind than it necessarily is with the physical and the conceptual components of fighting power. And here it was all in the mind, I think. And trying to read those minds was and is very, very difficult, not least because we don't have our tentacle, didn't have our tentacles out on the ground with the Afghan military in the way that we would have done a year or so ago. Um, so reading that was, was really difficult. I don't think anybody, any of us realised the extent to which the government of Afghanistan was perhaps disconnected from its armed forces. And perhaps we didn't ever understood that the armed forces didn't really want to fight for it either. Let's wind back to that American withdrawal and the the manner of it and what lessons we can learn from that. When Joe Biden announced in April America would pull its remaining troops out of Afghanistan by the end of August, you admitted it wasn't a decision that you'd hoped for. When did you first know that this withdrawal was then going to be conducted at such precipitous speed? And and what kind of notice were you given about what what was happening in the last few weeks? Well, I mean, you you will recall that when President Biden made his decision, he made it very clear that he wanted everybody to be out by the anniversary of 9-11, which we're about to have. Um, And of course, what he he also wanted was to be clear, I think, that um, ideally he'd be out by the 31st of August. So once that political direction had been issued in April, um, the military machine began to plan a withdrawal along those sorts of timelines. So I think that was all really clear. Now, I think what nobody could predict, and that's why we had a number of contingency plans, which is what we military tend to do, was what we would be handing over to. The assumption was that we would be handing over to Afghan forces that had been trained principally by the Americans, and who would essentially take over the security of the country, uh, and our withdrawal in a sense would not precipitate their collapse, and that we would be able to leave. Now, we then, of course, discovered that they collapsed, and it became a much harder prospect. A couple of questions along those lines from my colleague uh, Shashank Joshi, who's our defence and security editor. He says, might America have held on to Bagram Air Base? Is it Joe Biden's fault, in your view, General Carter, that it didn't and couldn't because it introduced that arbitrary troop cap in the final months? So, yes, we knew the direction. We knew that Joe Biden wanted to be out by the 31st of 
August, but there was still optionality within that, wasn't there, that wasn't taken? I mean, I think, you know, when you, with the, when you look back with uh, the benefit of hindsight, I'm sure there will be all sorts of lessons that military planners and decision makers might take from the way this thing was handled. But based upon the assumptions that they made at the time, I can understand why they did it as they did it. And I don't think it's for me sitting at the strategic level to judge you know, what the tactical commander at the time chose to do. I mean, he had very good reasons for doing it the way he did do it. And I accept those reasons. But do you think if we'd handled the withdrawal differently between us as allies, led, of course, by America, there could have been a better outcome? I think we're looking at, um, you know, the events of the last few weeks in isolation of everything that happened from the 29th of February last year onwards. And I think that people will undoubtedly want to understand what was behind the deal that was signed on the 29th of February last year with the Taliban. So, no, I, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to leap to hasty conclusions about the way all this is handled. A proper process of understanding the way this campaign was conducted, I hope not right back to the beginning, but certainly in the later years, is something that people should do, because there will be important lessons that we all learn about how you do nation building, important lessons about how you build the capacity of indigenous forces, and important lessons about how the impact of local politics bears upon the building and capacity building, more importantly, of, of indigenous forces. Let's talk about the role of Pakistan, a country you know very well, and you put great effort into that relationship with Pakistan and, and its role as a regional player in the context of Afghanistan. What do you think Pakistan's role in the Taliban victory has been? I mean, I think we just have, has to stand back for a moment. I mean, there are a number of, of neighbours of Afghanistan um, who have a dog in this fight, um, whether it's India, Pakistan, Iran, or the Stans to the north, or for that matter, China to the east. You know, the, the reality is that they all have a huge interest in making sure that Afghanistan becomes a stable country, because they all have a number of refugees, particularly Pakistan and Iran in their country from Afghanistan. And they don't want those numbers of refugees to get any greater than they are at the moment, if they can avoid it. And equally, they will be extraordinarily nervous about instability being exported from an unstable Afghanistan into the region as a whole. And understandably, countries like India are very worried about this, because if you go back and judge the Taliban's record up until 2001, you know, it did end up enabling the export, not just of international terrorism, but of regional terrorism as well. And of course, Pakistan is also very aware of that. So I think the, the role of the neighbours is fundamental in this. And I think we can understand that the objectives of those neighbours and Pakistan in, in particular is to try and ensure that they don't um, end up with an Afghanistan that is fundamentally unstable. Another question that uh, my colleague Shashank Joshi puts in that context is, do you feel disillusioned with your Pakistani counterparts in uniform, even betrayed? Because in the end, when it came to it, there was not much uh, help came there, none from that quarter. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I worked very closely <clears throat> with my um, Pakistani opposite numbers um, over the two years leading up to what occurred in August. And what, we, of course, we were trying to do at that time was that, um, you know, the plan was that... Um, the Ashraf Ghani-led government was going to be the government of the future. Um, we all assumed that if a political compromise could be reached, there would undoubtedly be some form of power sharing with the Taliban to one degree or another. But of course, what we were working to try and do was to improve the relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the efforts that I went to, uh, to get the two governments to talk to each other, indeed to get them to produce a shared vision. Um, and it led to a visit by Prime Minister Imran Khan in November last year up to see President Ghani and to make the announcement about the shared vision. These are all really positive efforts. And I don't think that there have been visits like that in the preceding years. 
I don't think that there had been what appeared to be a commitment by both heads of state to try and achieve what they were trying to achieve by way of a shared vision. Um, there were clearly economic rationales behind it, but also security rationales as well. Now, I think that there was commitment to that process. Now, of course, I think all countries naturally will hedge and the extent to which hedging was occurring is something that you know, may well have been the case, but our goal was to try and improve mutual trust between those two countries. And I feel very proud of where we got to actually in all of that. And of course, once April came, decisions were making to withdraw, all sorts of things changed in terms of the facts on the ground. But up until that point, my sense was there was commitment to trying to make a better relationship between the two countries. I don't think anybody reasonable doubts that in many cases, certainly by the latter end of this mission, it was making the best of a, a bad job and that realities on the ground were extremely difficult relations between the allies at times were difficult, major change of power in the White House as well. But one thing I hear a lot from, from politicians I speak to around Westminster is they, or ministers particularly, are in the frame on this. It's certainly doing different uh, in the US, that way that that is fought out politically. The military, uh, as you say, in the, in the US, the armed forces and their leadership in the UK, perhaps is seen sometimes to sort of get off the hook when things go wrong. And you could say it was after all, you couldn't have gone, the British couldn't have gone into Hellman to placate the Americans had it not been for getting a yes from people like you in uh, who were in post at the time. So, you know, is, is there a sense that you think perhaps you need to sort of put up your hands more to failure? Uh, definitely. Uh, and I think actually the military has a, a good record in learning lessons and, and then applying them. And indeed, you know, the whole Afghan campaign has been a process of, of learning. And, um, you know, I absolutely wasn't involved in the decision making associated with Helmand. Um, but are you saying you wouldn't have gone into Helmand if you'd been taking that decision? These were decisions taken by my predecessors. And I'm sure they took them uh, for the best of reasons based upon the facts that they had at the time. Well, it seems to have been wrong then, doesn't it? Again, I think, you know, it's very easy with the benefit of hindsight to look back and to question decisions that were taken throughout the whole campaign. The bottom line, though, is to make sure that you, you learn the lessons from that. And I think that there are some really compelling lessons that we can and should learn. And the thing I really learned from my immersion in southern Afghanistan between 2009 and 2010, when I was the divisional commander there, was that this was a lot less about killing people it was much more about trying to connect local people to local governance that they could trust. And that was essentially about local politics. And I think, you know, what happened in the adrenaline rush post 9-11 was that I think a lot of people probably didn't understand as much as they should do the dynamics on the ground in Afghanistan. And the upshot of that was when an, an enormous warlord arrived, it totally changed those dynamics. And I think if we go back several generations to our great, great, great grandfathers who lived and had their being in the region, they would probably have cautioned us to understand the anthropological aspects of society in Afghanistan. And in so doing, it might have led to different outcomes. But that, of course, wasn't the context at the time. And it's so easy with the benefit of hindsight, knowing what we now know in you in your comfortable drawing room and me sitting in my study, to be able to, to think about these things. And we, we can't judge people on what they thought was right at the time. What we have to do is to use what they've learned and to apply it to how we do it in the future. And to be fair to the military, a lot of what has emerged from the Defence Review in 2015 and is now in the integrated review that was announced recently, takes account of those sorts of things. 
You know, we are doing things which are very different as a consequence of what we discovered through the first and early years in the campaigns of the first 20 years of this century. You're certainly right. There's no shortage of what we used to call armchair generals, I think, of as now working desk chair generals around. And certainly in my profession, there's a, a pretty fair point to make on that. Let's widen out to 9-11 and the legacy of 9-11 and, and terrorism. This Saturday, of course, marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which precipitated the war in Afghanistan. The mission was to eliminate the terrorist threat from that country. British MI5 chief Ken McCallum has said, in Afghanistan, 20 years of dedicated effort have had a profound effect. The Al-Qaeda terrorist infrastructure we faced in 2001 is long since gone. Is that statement, as you understand it, correct or another example of wishful thinking? No, I mean, I think I think as at today, it is correct. <clears throat> I mean, I think that, you know, we've all been seeing reports uh, during the course of June and July as, as the Taliban began to take over Afghanistan, that they were being supported by Al-Qaeda affiliated foreign fighters. So, I mean, I think there is there is clearly a, a sense that the problem may well arise again. But the plain fact is that for 20 years, um, our presence in Afghanistan and the efforts of our intelligence agencies and many other people besides managed to negate the threat of international terrorism emerging from Afghanistan. So I think that's right. I mean, I think there are some <clears throat> big questions about what happens next. And I think, you know, there's some big questions about whether the events of this August will give an incentive to other violent extremists to feel that they can achieve their aims uh, in the way that this lot seem to have done. And those are questions that, of course, the security community now needs to get its mind around as quickly as possible. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to, to come to. And the, the local Islamic State affiliate, Islamic State in Khorasan province, claimed responsibility for the terror attack. killed need 200 people at Kabul airport. We would have all seen those shocking images late last month. How large a threat is this group? And to come to your bigger topic, which is what can you possibly leverage on the ground from the situation that now faces us, is it at all realistic to sort of get into the, the middle of that by any means when you're not in the country and to reduce that threat? Indeed, even the Taliban has an interest in reducing that threat. Yes, and I, I would stay, say right up front, you know, my heart goes out to all those who are either bereaved or who've been um, grievously wounded in that attack on Kabul airport. It was a, it was a shocking and savage event. Um, I mean, the straight answer is, is that um, ISKP, as we call it, has been a, a feature of the Afghan security situation for a number of years now. And they are no friends of the Taliban. Um, the, the Taliban, indeed, on a number of occasions over the last three or four years, have got after them, ironically, with the support of the Afghan government. So the answer is that the Taliban recognise this as a real threat, as of course is Pakistan. And it's going to be very challenging, I think, for the Taliban government to be able to keep on top of ISKP. I think there's some questions about whether ISKP is a regional problem or an international problem. I mean, my sense is it's probably a regional or local franchise of the bigger enterprise, and that it's more likely to be a challenge, I'm afraid, for the region than it is for the international community. But I think the bigger point is whether seeing them profiting in the way that they appear to be profiting inspires others in Africa or, for the matter, in Syria and Iraq and more broadly in the Middle East. And that's the thing I think that we all need to be conscious of and need to be thinking hard about how we're going to deal with it. And what would stop jihadist groups from setting up training camps in Afghanistan like those that were run by al-Qaeda before 9-11 and launching transnational attacks again? Because if you look at the situation now, one might 
hope to perhaps uh, come to some sort of arrangement with Taliban leaders in a counter-terrorist direction. But you wouldn't want to bet on it, would you? No, probably not. But on the other hand, the Taliban will have learnt the lessons of 2001 as much as we did. And I'm absolutely certain that they won't want to allow their country to become the sort of place that we would want to attack again. And it would be illogical for them to do that. Uh, they'd have nothing to gain from it. So I think we have to hope that they perhaps will be a little bit more sensible this time about whether they allow that sort of training for international terrorists to occur in Afghanistan. And I think genuinely it's not in their interest to do that because the sort of support they need in order to govern Afghanistan in a different way means that their neighbours, and in particular countries like China, they are not going to be keen to see extremism being encouraged and trained in Afghanistan. How much does this affect wider relations? I'm thinking particularly of the balance of power and, and sometimes at the moment standoffs, really, and what some people describe as almost virtual warfare running with Russia. And to what extent can you hope that this kind of reboots a relationship in which some of the big military powers in the world all have an interest in Afghanistan settling down. I mean, one thing we do share with, with Russia on this is I suppose we've uh, all failed in Afghanistan. <laughs> yes, I think more to the point though, I think we do have a common interest in trying to deal with violent extremism. But I also think it's worth reflecting in the light of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 about how you deal with this problem more broadly. And one of the things that I think I've learned over the last 20 years is certainly, yes, there are solutions that are about hard power, but fundamentally, so much of this is about soft power. And so much of it is about actually getting after the causes of violent extremism. And invariably, that is about a lack of education. It's about a lack of opportunity. And it's about a feeling of exclusion. And I think what we've got to do as we look forwards to this particular moment in this campaign, if I can call it that, is to recognise that these things need to be dealt with as well. And we're going to need to be patient in order to work on some of that stuff to get us through the next period of this effort. I'm wondering what impact you think all of this, the war, its failures, the very difficult trade-offs that you've had to make. What kind of impact does that have on intervention more broadly? And can you imagine Britain being at all inclined to follow America? It's a close ally in very close cooperation in the military sphere over decades. Is, has that been badly damaged by what's happened? And I think, fun enough, it's probably just worth reflecting on, on 2001 and why we uh, went into Afghanistan in the first place. And I think we tend to forget that actually in the NATO treaty, there was something called Article 5, um, which is an attack on one, is an attack on all of the allies. And of course, the only time in yours and my lifetime that Article 5 has been, as it were, put on the table was after 9-11. So the, you know, we went into Afghanistan based upon our support for our NATO ally, uh, the United States of America. And that's a really important point and a really important principle that applies to you know, whatever we might do together in the future. I think we also need to remember, of course, there was a Security Council resolution that backed all of that, but that's a second order question. But I, again, I think that there will be all sorts of lessons that we learn about nation building and this sort of intervention. And I, I think we'll, we'll find other ways of trying to achieve our ends. I think <clears throat> it's very difficult. And I mean, 20 years reflects a significant amount of patience. But as we've shown, you know, that may not have been long enough, uh, as it turns out, and it may well be that a lighter way of doing it, using local partners and perhaps building their capacity in a sort of mild way, you know, rather than getting our own boots firmly on the ground, may well be a better way of doing it. Sounds like you're, you'd like to contract out interventions. Well, I think it's ultimately those who live in their countries ultimately responsible for solving their own problems. What we have to do is to find a way of acting as a catalyst to help them do that if they want our help in doing it.
There are huge strategic questions, aren't there, for armed forces uh, in the democracies. We've had an integrated review, so-called, in Britain, which bet rather heavily on technology and cyber as the direction, or at least the priority. Of course, there's a, an argument about that, both inside the armed forces and in government and across politics. But if I were to ask you if you think air, land, naval or cyber power growing is the most important priority. Where would you be placing your efforts most squarely in the next few years? I think it's probably actually about how you integrate land, air, maritime, cyber and space to achieve an effect where the total effect is rather more than the sum of the individual parts. And of course, that integration comes down to the importance of the whole digital thing. You know, if you can create the cloud into which all of your things can plug, uh, whether that's, you know, your sensors, your decision makers, the things that kill people, then if you can make all of that come together, then actually prioritization becomes much more straightforward. And that, that I think is where we should put our, or we are putting our effort rather than the specifics of any particular individual domain. That's going to play a role, isn't it, in the appointment of your successor as chief of the defence staff, on which you may or may not like to offer a view? <laughs> well, I think you know the answer to that question. I wonder if you haven't just given the answer to that question for this. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm obviously not going to offer a view. It's far be it for me to do so. Let me ask you, as we come towards the end of the conversation, what do you feel most proud that you've achieved and the legacy that you will bequeath when you leave your post shortly and hand over to a new chief of the defence staff? We can also monster on this programme with inconvenient questions. What should they know about the job? What are your regrets and what are you proud of? I think when I started the job three and a half years ago, I did realise that defence was in a bit of a bind when it came to the resources. And I did feel that it was necessary to try and get the understanding within government of the threats that we faced more on the front burner. And I think my time right up until the recently published integrated review was about making people aware of that and about making people aware that a, the armed forces needed to adjust, to modernise and indeed to transform in many ways to be able to deal with that threat, but also that we probably couldn't do it with the resources that we had at the time. So I think, you know, I'm pleased with the way that we got to where we got to and the significant resource uplift we got in the autumn of last year. But I'm also very pleased with how the chiefs of staff, <clears throat> the heads of the three services, and of course the commander, strategic commander, my vice chief, have worked together uh, in a collegiate way to achieve this. I mean, you've been around long enough, Anne, to know that during defence reviews, there are often moments where people break ranks. And of course, in breaking ranks, the unanimity of purpose and indeed the unanimity of narrative collapses. And I think here, all of us have worked really well together to, to achieve that effect. It's great to have one's veteran status highlighted by the <laughs> chief of the defence staff. Thank you for, for that, General. Um, yeah, absolutely. Understand that. Um, I also should say you have very much on the plus side, I, in my opinion, at least, you've pushed hard to improve diversity in the army. You have run ad campaigns aimed at attracting people from diversity of backgrounds including sexuality ethnicity a uh, lot more women making it somewhere through the ranks i suppose your your worry might be that the last debacle in afghanistan has not really been a good pr for army life has it just sort of pulls against some of the work that you've been trying to do yeah no i think so i mean uh, <clears throat> i mean you know what one goes back to treating triumph and disaster both the same don't you um and the fact of the matter is is that i think you know, the armed forces are immensely resilient and people do tend to to bounce back. I mean, I, it's heartbreaking for so many of us and there are big questions about whether that was all worth it. And certainly from my perspective, one of the most important characteristics that we all have to have is humility. 
because without humility, there is a risk that you won't learn and that that resilience will be unfounded. And there are lots of things I wish we'd been able to move faster, which we haven't been able to move faster to achieve. It is often frustrating and often agonizing trying to get things to happen in you know the sorts of institutions in which we live and work. And, you know, you, you play your part to the best that you possibly can. And actually, over the last three and a half years, if it's found that I've got things wrong, you know, I'll happily step up to the plate to explain why I made the mistakes I made. Journalist Nick Carter, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Anne. And we'd love to know what you think lies ahead for Afghanistan, the region, and for the broader Western alliance in the wake of the rout in Kabul. And do politicians or the military bear more blame for mistakes? And what might we learn from them? Write to us, podcast at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods for your best introductory offer to all of our defence and security coverage, as well as much else from our amazing foreign section. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.